Tonight on Farage, the Sunak B Trust debates are not exactly inspiring the Conservative Party and movement. It's leading to a rebellion. 12,000 members signing a petition saying, put Boris on the ballot. We'll discuss, is that the right thing to do? The European Union are introducing gas rationing, as predicted months ago on this programme. We'll find out just how much trouble are they in. And joining me on Talking Pints, Andy Ungo, author and a man that's done his best to expose the violent tactics of Antifa. I have to say, I don't think the contest between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss is exactly catching fire. Rishi, you turning on tax policy already? Gosh, the contest has barely begun. As for Liz Truss, well, one or two interesting ideas, but wasn't it fascinating last night to see she wasn't capable of speaking for 60 seconds on why she should become Prime Minister without looking down at her notes four times. I've said it before, I'll say it again. It isn't a question of who is the best of these two. I just think Liz Truss happens to be the least worst. It's not inspiring, and many in the Conservative Party and movement are feeding that. And there's now a rebellion that is gaining steam, led by Lord Crudders, backed up by former MEP David Campbell-Bannerman, and they've got a petition going of Conservative Party members to say, put Boris on the ballot. And so far, 12,000 paid-up Conservative members have signed it. We don't exactly know how many Tory party members there are, about 160,000, we think. So, hey, you know what? It's pushing up towards their target of 10%. One MP thus far has backed it, Michael Fabrican. So let me ask you, given that a poll out today says 50% of Conservative voters think he shouldn't have resigned, should we put Boris on the ballot? Let me know your views, please, Farage at gbnews.uk. I have to tell you, folks, this is the Conservative Party in the middle of an act of destroying itself. It isn't just the really quite vehement and quite personal debate that's taking place between the last two. It is the fact that even though the Boris attempt to get onto the ballot is likely, in my view, to fail, what the party's going to have is a brooding presence on the backbenches and somebody whose personality is way larger than the two finalist contestants added up together and multiplied by 10. I think the party is in for a period of real, real difficulty and an election defeat. That is my view. I don't think it makes any sense to put Boris back on the ballot. You see, you can argue that half of Conservative voters from 2019 think he shouldn't have resigned, but think about it this way. 50%, 50% of them think that he should have gone. And even if you're winning a big majority in Parliament. If half of your voters think your time is up, I think your time is up. Well, joining me to discuss whether Boris should be put back on the ballot and what his long-term presence is going to mean for the new leader is somebody that knows him well, worked with him in City Hall as an advisor and as a confidant. It's Colvere Ranger. Welcome to the programme. Good evening, Nigel. You know Boris well, and I think you and I both agree on one thing. I mean, he does make some dreadful mistakes, but he is larger than life. Yes. Compared yeah. to the last two in this context. He, he is, and you've summed him up. He, he definitely will cast a huge shadow. Uh, and the Conservative Party will probably look at Boris Johnson in weeks, months ahead and say, 
what did we do? Especially when it comes down to elections, because let's be honest, he is an election winning machine, undefeated. Uh, won this city, this fantastic city, which is a Labour leading city, which yeah. it was always thought would be very difficult for a Conservative to win twice, 2008 and again in 2012. You know, that was, um, that was called defying the laws of political gravity in 2012, but he's done it so many times that we sort of get used to it. And then again, redefining Conservative politics through Brexit. Brexit in 2016, yes, he made his argument and he won his argument with a lot of other people, including yourself, playing mm -hmm. a part there. And then the 2019 general election. But all these things are linked together. This demonstrates a politician who reaches beyond traditional Conservative voters. We saw the general elections in advance of 2019. The Conservative Party struggling to get that 35, never really reaching 40%. Huge majority seemingly out of their reach as the party was structured as it is. He demonstrated how the Conservative Party goes beyond that. How it reached to Labour voters, the so-called red wall taking that down brick by brick. But really, it was 2016 which defined a generation of people who felt they could vote for Boris Johnson, he made the right a call. Conservative. He made the right call yeah. on Brexit. I mean, albeit uh, late in the day. Yes. But he did make the right call on that. Look, but he's gone. At least I thought he'd gone. But clearly, Lord Crudders, Campbell Bannerman, are now 12... I mean, 12,000 is a significant number, and it appears to be growing by about 2,000 every day. Yes. This is a recipe for disaster for the party, isn't it? it it's, a, it's an unhealthy distraction, let's be honest, because <laughs> it's not where the party that's needs to be That's a real understatement, yeah. isn't it? The, the, the challenge here is, and that's the problem we've got with these two candidates, which, by the way, for anyone who's a football fan, I describe as it's a, a Liverpool-Man City playoff, and you're a Manchester United fan. I'm sorry if that doesn't mean anything to a lot of people, but what it means is that they were expected almost to get there because you needed people who have cabinet experience who could step into the role of prime minister not just leader of the conservative party so where there's been a comparison to when david cameron came in david cameron was just be was becoming leader of the conservative party in opposition and had time to grow still we need people who can take the the, the levers of power straight away but what we also have is people redefining conservative politics they need somebody who can campaign they need someone who can keep that cohort of the red wall tories plus everybody else together, and they need someone who can say, what kind of conservative are they going to be? Because party members, I would say, are confused. Are we a high-tax party? Are we a small state party? Mm. What kind of future has the Conservative Party got, got? And I think, obviously, COVID has played a part here. We're in the post-era of to COVID. to be fair, COVID, Boris has played a part in yes. this, because he was elected as a conservative and started governing as a liberal. That's true, but he's always been a liberal. We've got to be honest there as well. So I don't think there's a surprise here. Boris is remarkably <laughs> consistent in his approach. For those who seem surprised by what he does, look at how he governed London and got stronger and better at running London. And I think that was what was going to happen as he took the, uh, took the helm of the Conservative Party in government. Now, people found that difficult to understand. Not me, because I worked with him. Yeah, I understood, yeah. understood what we yeah. were doing. I think the challenge was those around him to help him do that. Now, we're, we're at the point where we are. I think it's the future we've got to look at. You said, you know, the, the best of the worst is what we're looking at here. Well, I think we've got five, six weeks, God bless us, to hear from these, uh, these two candidates develop. I think they need to establish their conservatism, a new conservatism. Rishi is struggling, I they have to say. I haven't picked a winner, by the way. I'm not so, no, so right. many cap. But Rishi needs to move from being a CFO to a CEO. He needs to take the, take the vision of what his conservatism means rather than focusing on the tax and policies around tax cuts and changing his Liz Truss is obviously demonstrating what kind of conservative she wants to be, 
But is that really her? The authenticity is what's the question there. She can't actually do it without reading off a piece of paper. And I think presentationally matters. It really does matter. We're talking about a global statesperson that we need to have in power mm. here. And both of them, well, Rishi has been there as chancellor, so he's got that in his bag. Let's trust foreign secretary and another couple of cabinet roles as well. It's a close call, I would say, Nigel. They both have it there to win, but they've got to demonstrate the conservatism that appeals both to the party members, the future of this country, and to the broad public, because they've got to get them on side as well. Final thought, two parts. Number one, should Boris be put on the ballot, as Crudus and 12,000 demand? And if he's not, which I, I doubt he will be, is he going to be a very dangerous presence on the backbenches? He won't be put on the ballot. That's not what this is about. He shouldn't be on the ballot. It, 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 sh it just demonstrates the popularity and the uniqueness of the man and his, his brand and the, of And the splits in the party. And the splits in the party, but I think it's more, it's more of a push okay. from, from the public and members, as we can see. And will he be worse than Ted Heath? What's the Mrs Thatcher sitting on the back benches? I, I, I think Boris has more to give in public life. Uh, uh, you know, oh, I, uh, that he sounds very dangerous no, for the he, next he, leader. He, he, well, you know, David Cameron said this always have your best players on the pitch. And I think there's, a, there's roles for Boris Johnson to play, whether they're internationally, whether in the UK, and the best prime minister makes the best tool, usage of the tools available to them. And if Boris Johnson is there, I think they should make best use of him. COVID Ranger, thank you very much indeed for joining us tonight on GB News. Thank you. Now, we have been talking on this programme for some months, predicting on this programme for some months, that there was a really major energy emergency coming to the European Union and its member states. We've even been talking and predicting rationing. And, of course, a lot of people have thought this is ridiculous scaremongering. How on earth could something like that happen in a modern, advanced, successful nation such as Germany? Well, in the last couple of days, the EU have agreed that member states will voluntarily cut gas usage by 15%. But if they don't actually meet those targets voluntarily, they'll bring in legislation. And everyone's saying, isn't it wonderful? The EU has shown solidarity. Well, not really, because Malta's been exempted and Cyprus has been exempted and the Republic of Ireland has been exempted. And the Hungarians have just stuck two fingers up and said, no, we're not playing your game. And there was quite strong opposition from Portugal, from Spain, from Greece, from others. I don't think they're in a very united place at all. Well, the man that's been with me for these last few months making some frighteningly accurate predictions is, of course, Clive Moffat, who, amongst other things, advises our government on energy. What a mess they're in, Clive. Yes, indeed. It's very hard to see any clear rationale behind the EU decision, other than Germany has asked the Commission to say, look, we don't want to bear the full burden of having to cut back our industry and consumers on supplies. It would help if other members of the EU were to reduce demand and thereby reduce some of the pressure that we're having so to it's, take. So have a whip round for Germany? Hands up for Germany, yes. That's pretty much what it is. And of course, just for those listening and watching that aren't aware of this, the, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline is going down to 20% of its 20 capacity. 20% of yeah, what it should be, yes, at this time of year. And the threat that Putin could play any sort of game over the winter months? I don't see. I think the game that's been played is that um, Putin will continue to 
manipulate the market in this way so it seems uh, of course you do I mean he can sell less at a higher price he still gets the same revenue Yes, and he has found new markets, hasn't he? Since the Indeed. Ukraine invasion, he's selling a lot more to India, a lot more to China. Yeah. Economically, he's not in the very damaged position that many yeah. thought our sanctions would put him in. So what happens now? The, they try this voluntary cut, which they're not, but they're not going to meet the target, are they? I think it's going to be very, very difficult. I think each country will always tend to do what's best itself and decide how much it wants to cut back output and employment um, and impact. What will this decision will not do? It won't alter. Taking 50, if it was a success, taking 15% out of European demand, say, between now and the end of next winter, could well, might, would not have any impact on price increases in the wholesale market. So it's not going to have any real effect on inflation in that sense. What it will do is that uh, if countries do decide, that particularly those countries that don't have large stocks of gas, those with large stocks of gas, like Hungary, for example, can say, well, we're not going to cut back. We're not going to put our industry... In effectively, cutting back is lowering the standard of living in the country, isn't it? Yes, it's direct. It's like saying we're going to voluntarily impose stagflation across Europe. That's what it is. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And, of course, the price of gas this week has rocketed once again on the exchanges. Indeed. Let's come back to the UK. Let's come back to our viewers and listeners worrying about their bills. We've had this wonderful concept from Theresa May of price caps that were in introduced. They've not really worked. Where are we it's going? It's a bit of a misnomer, do <laughs> Well, no, totally. But, you know, just um, cheer everybody up at home and tell them what's going to happen to their gas bills. Well, as of, uh, the market seems to expect that we're going to be in the region of an energy cap of 3,850 by next January, which is almost double where we are now. Um, and so, yes, I think there's not much we can do about it. As I've said many times before on this program, if you don't control wholesale prices, there's very little luck trying to control retail prices. Yeah. Final thought, if I may, Clive. Drax. This massive company, Drax, overnight announced their profits. They've made yet more money. For those that don't know, as I understand it, in this country run by a government obsessed with carbon dioxide and climate change, we cut down forests in North America and in the Baltic states, and we ship it all in to North Yorkshire, where we burn wood. Correct. Which is now the biggest single emitter of carbon dioxide in this country... How is it allowed? Why is it allowed? It's allowed because trees grow again. And that's the <laughs> argument, that, it, that it's a sustainable form of CO2 production. Well, thank you, yes. <laughs> but there's a time lag here. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, and also you've got to bear in mind, that, well, this was allowed and it was subsidised at the top. Um, and it's likely to continue to be allowed, mainly because we are going to be very dependent in coming winter on fossil fuel generation, pellets included, and that might include coal. So drugs might end up burning more coal than, than it, as it used to do. Extraordinary. Clive Moffat, thank you very much. And who knew? Who knew that your taxpayer money was being used to cut down forests and burn it in North Yorkshire for energy? We'll come back to that topic again and again, I have no doubt.
So I asked you at home, should Boris be put on the ballot? Your response is Mark says, nope, the idiot had his chance and blew it with the public. Steve says, no, but you should be. Well, Steve, that's very sweet of you. But in British politics, we don't have any such thing as open primaries. After all, we wouldn't want anybody that wasn't in the inside club to be there now, would we? Tony says, if that's what the members want, then it should happen especially if Boris wants to stay on as Prime Minister. Tony, be in. Absolutely. No doubt about one thing. Boris Johnson does want to stay on as Prime Minister. I've just got this sneaky feeling that if this contest ends and a new Prime Minister comes in on the 5th of September, Johnson will be there on the back benches, itching for them to make a mistake and to come back as leader. I just got this feeling it could be very, very bad news for the party. And finally, Joe says, I'd like Boris to retract his resignation and stay as our PM. If not, then Liz Truss would be second best. Well, we'll see. It'll be interesting. That rebellion in the Conservative Party has been growing by about 2,000 signatures every day. Let's see what happens over the course of the next few days. Now, we all got very excited last summer, didn't we, with the Euro finals and it's coming home and we all believed that England would win and I went to Wembley to watch the final. I've never seen crowd behaviour as bad as that in my life. And of course, we lost on penalties. But last night, the Lionesses, and I don't know whether you can see my tie, but I've got some, some Lioness motifs on it. Um, of course, the country's behind them. It is estimated that an amazing 14 million people watched the game against Sweden last night, and they won 4-0. I mean, absolutely amazing, terrific stuff, including a back heel, which everybody got terribly, terribly excited about. And so on Sunday at 5 o'clock, they will kick off. It'll be against France or Germany. We don't know. There's one thing for certain. England will start as very strong favourites. So... Is it coming home? Well, let's ask Lauren Smith, Bristol City women's head coach. Lauren, good evening. Hello there. You all right? Hello. Yes. Now, tell me. I mean, women's football has never had this level of attention, this level of excitement, this level of viewership. But what we need to know, Lauren, from somebody who doesn't just run a club and manage a club, but is a, a well-known television pundit, is it coming home on Sunday? I think it very much looks likely right now. They're certainly the, the most exciting uh, team in the tournament. It's going to be a tough final, whoever gets through tonight, whether it's France or Germany. But England are playing the best that they've ever played. They're playing with no fear. Um, and it does look like they're unstoppable right now. So, yeah, it's going to be exciting and a, and a home final as well. Yes, I mean, a home final. Clearly, there's a, there, there is an element of home advantage in this, and that must be a good thing. What is it about this team that's made it so dynamic, so successful? Is it captaincy? Is it management? I mean, like a look at England cricket, you know, which was in the dumps in the winter, got a new coach, got a new captain. They've turned it around. What is it about this team? that is making it so good and making it favourite for Sunday? Well, it, you can't speak about the team without speaking about the manager, Serena Wiegmann. She's been in less than a year and she, the, the numbers that have come out of her just playing. So 
the the style of play that they've got. They've scored, I think, over a hundred goals and um, conceded less than five in the whole of their tenure, less than a, less than a year. So, I think that shows that they've changed the way they play. They're really attacking, dynamic and clinical. So, I think you know having her at the helm is certainly one thing. But then how she she gets the team playing because of the, her style of play is is excellent. And it's the two things together. Um, and you can see the team get behind her ideas and her tactics. And then when they get success and they get results, they know exactly why. Nope, but that makes perfect sense, Lauren. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. And fingers crossed for everybody for a success on Sunday. Thank you for joining us here on GB News. I have to say, 100 goals in favour and five against isn't a bad record as a manager. Now, more rail strikes today, as you all know. And Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, today has imposed a fair bit of authority. At least I think so. Sam Tarry, who was this morning their minister for buses and local transport, but in television interviews this morning, seemed to promote himself to be the shadow minister for transport. He was out there on the RMT picket lines. Uh, and I have to say, the RMT have been given an 8% pay rise offer over the next two years. Uh, Mick Lynch has pretty much rejected it out of court. Uh, two feelings I've got on this. The first is that Mick Lynch is actually a very good media performer and I think has up until now elicited a fair bit of sympathy from the public and say, well, yeah, actually, a lot of these people working on the railways are not that well paid. They need to get more. But realistically, isn't 8% about the most he can really hope for? And what of Keir Starmer and the Labour Party? Well, I'm joined by Peter Edwards, former editor of Labour List. Starmer, I've given him credit on this show, Peter. I've said that the way he's dealt with Corbyn, dealt with that left-wing extremism, which I think was really toxic for Labour in 2019 at the ballot box. That was a good thing. But over these strikes, and whether the Labour Party should be supporting the unions, not supporting the unions, whether people should go and attend picket lines or not, is he in danger of seeing some level of party division here? To be frank, there's division in every party, but of course, in opposition, you go by the mantra of divided parties aren't elected. And yes, the government has been and continues to be in chaos. That won't be enough for Keir Starmer. I think he's done a great job over the two years, whether it was briefly, you know, to, to run through some of the key points to me, apologising on day one to the Jewish community, getting key reforms through party conference, and then giving a very personal speech at Brighton to introduce himself to the electorate. But clearly, he's in a bit of a pickle now about rail strikes. Mm. And how do you get out of that? I think the answer to me, and I think it goes to your point about why Mick Lynch has been such an effective communicator as well, is to recognise very overtly that it's not rail workers against the public, it's we're all on the same side. Rail workers, they are parents, they are renters, they are people with mortgages to pay, they are people that deserve one foreign holiday a year like the rest of us. And I think that's the message the Labour Party needs to make. And I think it's been the Conservative Party, and particularly in the interest of Grant Shapp, the Transport Secretary, to whip up a sense of division between rail workers and the public. And the more public understand about the strike, they understand that why would you continue to go for work for a real terms pay cut? Because everybody else is going to have to. I think that's, I mean, that's the, to me, that's the reality. I think Mitt Lynch has done quite well to get an 8% offer over the course of the next two years. Uh, I think that's about the best anyone can expect, given the circumstances we're in. And, and I sensed this morning 
that for the first time Lynch was beginning to lose the argument with the public. Well, I'm not sure about that, but as a socialist, I would say that there is no case ever for a real terms pay cut on the railways, for example, when we know the government is there to support it. And it's important that viewers... But what about know, the civil service? What about all of these? What about all of these jobs? Well, civil service is unionised in a very different way, but just to focus on rail and that 8% figure, it's important that for uh, viewers to know that that is staggered 4 2 and 2%. And of course, that does nothing for the uh, year or so of high inflation we've had already. So that would be a partial pay rise in future, spread over several right. years. So you're, so, so, so you're in support of Lynch, on, and, I, and I understand that, and I get that, and you've made your case. But I repeat the point. Starmer has made some reforms, and I grant you that, and I've credited him with that several times. He, he, he's not a big charismatic figure, and there's no point arguing back on that. We all know that. He's safe and dependable and all these things. But if he's having to sack shadow ministers, is that a sign of strength or a sign of weakness over the party? Well, I was certainly surprised at that decision. I think I have a lot of sympathy for Transport and Salaried Staff Association. They've been a friend of the Labour Party in many ways. And, of course, Sam Tarry used to work for the TSSA, and that's one of the unions that's on strike today. So being Shadow Minister was his... Uh, Shadow Rail Minister was his dream job. Mm -hmm. And, of course, if you worked for the TSSA, it's entirely reasonable and human that you'd want to go and support the people you represented, ordinary rail workers, mm. on a day like today when they're having their pay cut. Sure, I get why Sam Tarry did what he did, but I'm just saying, I just repeat the question. Is the sacking of Sam Tarry a sign that Starmer is a strong leader or that he's got a real problem? Um, I think it's strong. And, of course, there was, there was one Labour leader... Tony Blair, who was very successful at uh, picking fights with his own party because it sent a message to the general electorate at large um, about how the Labour Party had changed. I think the challenge for Keir Starmer is that Tony Blair maybe had a poll lead of 10 to 25 points in opposition against a very weak John Major. Yeah. You all obviously remember these days, whereas Keir Starmer does have a consistent poll rating, but it's around... Um, 10%. And of course, Keir Starmer's entire tactic that you alluded to, that is I'm safe, honest, as we saw over the non-COVID breach, safe, honest, clever, lawful, do the detail. I like a beer and a curry. Uh, <laughs> well, I like a beer and a curry, but you can still have it within the rules. But, <laughs> but, but that, that message that Keir Starmer had for the electorate will have to be um, revised pretty sharpish because Boris is going, and I heard your previous item, yeah. Boris is finished to me. So Keir Starmer's pitch, which I, to me is still compelling because... You know, you can't beat integrity. You've either got it or you haven't. But he'll need to repackage that the electorate. And I think he wouldn't have wanted a battle like today. But I think the message will be um, he's an aside of the general public. As someone inside the Labour Party, I'd say let's get rid of the language of the division because that's what the Tories want and accept the rail workers and the public are the same people. I think sometimes sacking people is a sign of strength. But we'll see. Peter Edwards, thank you very much indeed for coming and joining and giving us that Labour perspective. Now, I have to say, I perhaps sometimes have slightly old-fashioned views on things, but I'm very pleased to see that Stephen Watson, Greater Manchester's police new chief constable, been in position for less than a year, has decided that Manchester police need to smarten up to command the respect of the public. And he has said, if you turn up to work, if you're a female officer, tie your hair up. If you're a man... Let's hope you've had a shave, you've pressed your clothing and polish your shoes. Look smart, look professional. We're very uncompromising on that. And actually, I think he's got a point. I think people should 
particularly those wearing uniform, uh, there to, to maintain law and order. I think they should look smart. They should look up to the mark. Well done, him. Now, this will please some people, but horrify others. I expect my previous guests will be utterly horrified by this thought. But my what the Farage moment is Donald Trump returned to Washington, D.C. yesterday. It's the first time he's been there in a very long while. He gave a speech at a big... American conservative conference, and I've been saying for some time, I'm in no doubt that Trump is going to run in these elections. Indeed, this week's Spectator front page makes that point, and I spoke to them at length about it. But have a look at these words that Trump, uh, that Trump uttered on the stage in D.C. last night. I always say I ran the first time and I won. Then I ran a second time and I did much better. We got millions and millions more votes. And you know what? That's going to be a story for a long time. What a disgrace it was. But we may just have to do it again. We have to straighten out our country. We have to straighten out our country. Oh, there you are. It couldn't be clearer. He is, I mean, it wasn't an official declaration because that starts all sorts of, all sorts of clocks ticking in terms of money and compliance. But he couldn't have been clearer. He intends to run again. And he then went on to say that he thought the death sentence should be used for drug dealers. And this, of course, once again, will split American opinion. But then have a think about what Trump is up against. I mean, this is a real what the Farage moment. This is Kamala Harris in action yesterday, too. Uh, good afternoon. I want to welcome these leaders for coming in to have this very important discussion. Um, about some of the most pressing issues of our time. Um, I am Kamala Harris. My pronouns are she and her. I am a woman sitting at the table wearing a blue suit. And... Um, Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. She seems to be more obsessed with pronouns than she is with all the problems that are going on in the world. And a lot of people have tweeted at Kamala Harris, well, you say you're a woman, but can you define what a woman is? Because Justice Brown, the new Supreme Court judge that's been appointed in America, when she was asked, could she define what a woman was, said, no, I, I'm not a biologist. Could you believe it? Welcome back. It is time for Talking Pints. And my guest this evening is from Portland, Oregon. And his name is Andy, but his surname has always confused me because it's N-G-O. Is it Andy Ungo? I think it's Andy No is how you pronounce it. Is that right? Yes, it is. It's Hello. Andy No. It's a silent G. Welcome to Talking Pints. Thank you for having me on. Good to see you. Now, yours is... Yours is a great story. Your parents from Vietnam... Uh, coming out of some pretty appalling uh, conditions and, and becoming political refugees, effectively, in America. Yes, my parents uh, were from the so former South Vietnam and they became political prisoners after the collapse of the South Vietnamese government. Uh, they were sent to labor camp, prison camp, mm. re-education camp, as it was uh, formerly called. And they were part of the very large diaspora of Vietnamese who fled on boats to refugee camps in neighboring countries and applied for asylum in the West. And eventually was legally uh, and through a long process settled in the United States. And a number of years later, I was born. So genuine refugees in yes. every sense of the word. Yes. And how many Vietnamese finished up in America? 
I believe through the late 70s and throughout the early 90s, the United States took in nearly a million refugees from Vietnam, including their, fa their family, uh, family members that were later a huge number of people. Now, Portland, Oregon, you're way out there on the West. It's a fantastic, beautiful part of the world. I'd imagine, you know, a pretty fabulous place to grow up and, 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 and to be educated. And yet, uh, if we look at uh, Portland, Oregon today, it is, would it be fair to say that it's descended into a level of lawlessness that would have been incomprehensible even 10 years ago? Yes, I think Portland, Oregon, where I'm from, is a microcosm of what happens when the policies that are inspired by so-called BLM and so-called anti-racism is instituted at a state level. Uh, what we've seen just since after George Floyd died is that the city is now experiencing historic surge, surges in violent criminality, in homicides, in shootings. The mayor of Portland just last week declared a state of emergency over the number of people who have been shot and killed because it's never been this high. Portland is just one of more than a dozen cities in the United States who are also experiencing similar trends towards yeah, violence. I've got friends in Chicago. You know, I was in commodities before I was involved in, in, in this politics and, 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 and media world. And Chicago now, people don't go out at night. I mean, Chicago was, when I used to go to Chicago, it was the most amazing, fantastic social world of people. So it's happening all over America. It is. And those who should be apologizing to the public over their demands of abolishing police, defunding police, demonizing police, well, they're nowhere to be found. In fact, many of them have dug into their heels and say that the reason why we're experiencing these higher numbers of deaths, predominantly of black and brown people, is because our agenda is not fully realized. In fact, we need to go further. It's not enough to defund the police. You have to abolish the police. And ultimately, if you go further and further into the goal, what they really want to do is to abolish the United States. They don't view the United States as a legitimate state. That's why they say it's systematically racist. It's on occupied land. It's they want to reinvent, revise the history of the United States. They oh, we're getting some of this over here too, Andy. Don't worry. You know, we're getting Churchill was awful and, and exactly and courtesy of Americans. There's an export. Uh, that's what America's well, we exporting get, around we, the world. We catch everything from America. We get the good stuff and we get the bad stuff. What was it that politicized you? What was it specifically that politicized you? Well, I started off as a student journalist at a university in Portland State. And I just wanted to report on what I was witnessing. Um, I was working for the student newspaper when... Trump was announced as a winner in 2016, and my city was on fire for several days. Um, tens of thousands of people took to the streets <clears throat> to declare that election illegitimate without evidence, and that there. Some, some would say that's happening this time round with Trump the other way, but hey, keep going, keep going. They rioted for three days, and the response from the liberal establishment was that that rage was legitimate, and political violence, when carried out for left-wing causes, is legitimate. Uh, all about means and ends, yeah. And I thought to just document the violence with my mobile phone and yeah. post it on social media. And eventually, I learned about, very quickly about Antifa, and 
Um, you know, I'm sitting in front of you today as uh, an independent journalist, but according to my detractors, I'm, they say I'm one of the most dangerous people in America who has to be eliminated. And that's partially why, why we're doing this interview in London and me not in Portland is because I've, I've been subjected to so much violence against myself and death threats that it is very dangerous for me to be there. Nothing justifies the death threats, the violence, and frankly, the fact that you've had to leave home and come to live in London for your own safety and for the safety of your family. Now, I understand that and get that. But, Andy, I put it to you, you know, you are quite an effective sort of agent provocateur, aren't you? And, and some of the people that you've been out with, mixed with, you've covered, you know, whether it's the Proud Boys or groups like this, I mean, they're pretty far out there, aren't they? Yeah, so I disagree with the characterization that I'm a provocateur. I think I have been on the ground covering brawls and riots and violence from people who of all political persuasions. And my detractors have sought to cast that as evidence that I was embedded or part of certain right-wing groups. I've always rejected that. So would you argue then that when you attended whether it's an Antifa demonstration or a Proud Boys demonstration, would you argue you were doing that as a journalist? Absolutely. The footage was all of it was posted on my social media. And there are, I mean, nobody applies that same type of standard to, let's say, left-wing journalists who communicate and travel with Antifa black bloc groups. They're still given the label of journalists. I actually don't go with any group. I show up on my okay. own. And because I'm neutral, actually, this is the main issue is my, de my detractors want to take me down because I refuse to condone political violence against the right, that that somehow makes me then a supporter of right-wing extremism. It's absolutely untrue. Now, you wrote a book about all this, Unmasked, Inside Antifa and the Threat to Democracy, and it's a book that it sold very well. People were fascinated by what you'd done. Um, it was an expose on Antifa. Here in the UK... Antifa is not that well known. But something happened here a couple of years ago, and it was following the death of George Floyd, or murder, we should say, more accurately under the law of George Floyd. Within 24 hours, there were organised demonstrations taking place just over the river here. Um, uh, police officers taking the knee, and, and I, much lesser extent than you, but I went on mainstream British media to say, be careful. You know, by all means talk about equality of opportunity in society. But don't lionise. Don't say BLM are a wonderful organisation. Just read their website. And nobody did. And lots of us finished up getting cancelled. So, you know, I know the feeling <laughs> what it's like. Um, what is BLM? Explain to people what is BLM. You've looked at this, you've researched this. What are their real aims and objectives? So BLM, that short organization, was founded by three black American women who are self-identified Marxists. And a number of reports have come out about particularly one of them, her multi-million dollar estate empire in the United States, how tens of millions of dollars that were donated were allegedly misused. Um, so they're dealing with their own legal issues right now in the United States. And I think ultimately that may be the legacy of the BLM, actual, you know, capital BLM organization. The broader movement itself, though, if you go to any of their demonstrations, as I have, you'll see that they will recite the poetry of communist terrorists like Asata Shakur. They will wear 
um, shirts and, and have signs with her image on it because they actually look, they admire the domestic terrorism of past communist terrorists in the United States. And of course, as you said, if you went on their website a number of years ago and looked at what they're actually calling it for. It was all there and mainstream media chose not to look. Correct. And if you dared to challenge it, as yeah, I have, yeah. you are treated as a blasphemer. Yeah. And the same thing applies to Antifa. If you yeah. go against them, yeah. you're then... Well, agreeing with anything. I mean, it was extraordinary. Winston Marshall, Mumford & Sons, enormously successful musician. You know, he read your book and posted on social media that it was a book we should read and it was great work. And he's finished up leaving the band because of the hatred that he's received. Andy, where do we go with all of this? I mean, I look at, I look at America, I look at what's happening, as I say, you know, you know Portland better than I do, but I do know those other big cities and I do know friends that are leaving and getting out and they're going to Miami or Texas or wherever else they're going. What is America's future? I mean, is this division going to lead to large-scale civil violence, or is there a means by which some common sense can prevail and some understanding that both sides of an argument are valid? I'm not optimistic about where America's heading. I think what we are witnessing is that certain federal agencies are being used, uh, weaponized against certain segments of the American population that wow. the current administration uh, shares a mutual enemy with. Um, we see over and over a sort of two-tier system in many jurisdictions where if you are accused or arrested or suspected of committing far left political violence, your case gets dropped or dismissed by prosecutors who are elected and are trying to appeal to a certain constituency who have been entirely affected by this brain virus, mind virus, of uh, far left political violence. So where do we go from here? Well, where I go is that I continue to defend the values of liberal democracy and freedom of expression and freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. I know these things sound like cliches, but ultimately this is what the violent far left are trying to take down. Their argument is that those who disagree with them, regardless of where they, that other person may be politically, they need to be shut down through the use of violence. And it's, this sickness is not confined to just American universities anymore. It's spread out to every segment of society and we're seeing the consequences of that. It's very depressing. Final thought, final quick thought. Donald Trump making it almost clear yesterday that he's going to run. Does he help this situation? Is he part of the solution or does he inflame it even more? What happened in 2016 when he uh, was announced as a winner, um, that really broke the mainstream left. It radicalized them. And I'm afraid of what, how they would respond again to another Trump campaign. And this is completely independent of what Trump mm. may say or do. It, it almost doesn't really matter. The fact of his mere existence, the fact that the American right wants to organize and be part of this political process to, in, in the minds of the far left is inexcusable, unacceptable, well, and must be shut down by any means necessary. Andy, you have stood up. You've been brave. You've paid a fairly big price for what you've done. And I thank you for coming on Talking Pipes. Thank you very My much pleasure. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you.
We have a little bit of time left for Barrage the Farage. Your questions have been sent in. Rob says, will we be paying for a glass of tap water in restaurants soon? Let me assure you what they charge for bottled water that probably is tap water anyway in some cases is pretty extortionate. As we've seen in Germany, rationing is coming in, but it's all for our own good. In fact, we're increasingly seeing governments pursuing policies that will damage and decrease our quality of life. But that's okay because we're all going to save the planet. Lewis asks, do you think food banks help people or foster a dependence and a learned dependency, as spoken by Nick Buckley yesterday? I have to say, I thought Nick was the most exceptional Talking Pints guest yesterday. There's somebody who's worked with the homeless for 20 years saying to you at home, don't give people on the streets money. It isn't helping them. There are centres in every city people can go to and say, right, I want help. Give them money. All it does is finish up with drug dealers. Food banks, well, of course, there are perhaps many people out there really, really struggling who might want a bit of help. So, look, it depends what we're talking about when it comes to street begging. Remember also what Nick Buckley said. Two-thirds of those on London cities begging aren't homeless. They're part of criminal organisations trying to fleece you. Tough love was the message from Nick yesterday. I have to say, it left quite an impression upon me. And finally, one viewer asks, who would Putin be most afraid of, Sunak or Truss? Oh, I don't know. I can't answer a question like that. It's not possible. Neither of them is the answer. The only person he'd be frightened of is a bloke called Donald Trump. And if he was in the White House, I think some of you are screaming now at me, but if he was in the White House, this war in Ukraine wouldn't be happening at all. Enough from me. 